0: Hi, and welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. Today I have with me Marie Grace Brown, uh, who is assistant professor at the University of Kansas, where she is also affiliated with the Kansas African Studies Center. She received her bachelor's degree at Bryn Mawr College and her doctorate at the University of Pennsylvania. She identifies as a cultural historian of the modern Middle East with a special interest in empire, gender, and the body as historical text. Brown's work has been supported by grants from the American uh, Association of University Women, the Social Science Research Council, and the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation. She's the author of several articles and a new book, out 2017 from Stanford University Press, Khartoum at Night, Fashion and Body Politics in Imperial Sudan. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: No, it's – congratulations on the book. It's really –
1: it was a pleasure to read. Thank you. Thank you. It was um, sometimes a pleasure to write. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so, we always start off with a bit of an intellectual biography question, sort of how did you come to the study of Sudan?
1: How did you come to write the book? Yeah, and I think it's um, sometimes dangerous to ask historians those questions because we could go back, you know, pretty f- <laughs> far into our own history about how we got started. Um, but how I came to Sudan was um, by accident, as I think a lot of um, projects are. I was. Um, I entered graduate school with an interest in um, Egypt in the mid-20th century. Um, and while taking a, a graduate seminar on North Africa, you know, I, I just sort of thought, well, I'll just write, the, you know, a seminar paper about Sudan and, and just, you know, why not do something a little bit uh, different? Um, and it was incredible just sort of how little information was out there. So it, it felt like this wide open in which you could sort of really play around and ask um, any number of questions um, because so few um, scholars um, in the United States, and I would even extend this to England in some ways, um, work on Sudan and certainly on Sudanese women. There was just really a dearth of information. Um, So that piqued my interest. Uh, And then as, um, so my, uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about women's activism in Sudan. And, um, that was what my dissertation was about. Um, but there were all these references, um, kind of throwaway references to, um, fashion and the body. Um, so I'd reading memoirs of different activists and they would say, uh, we attended this protest and we all wore our national costume, or, um, I was able to go to school because I was wearing this particular type of dress. Um, and those references just kind of started uh, piling up. And I thought, wow, like the story here seems to really be about um, what women are wearing and how they're moving their bodies. Um, and, and that seemed to sort of really be part of the imperial experience about um, growing up, coming of age, defining what it meant to be a woman. Um, and so, uh, it, you know, it, it all sort of fell together, um, in the, um, the past couple years, right. That this was, um, that what I was looking at was, was, uh, was a body story, a story about, um, an, an intimate experience of, um, empire. And so that's what I've attempted to do in the book is, um, tell the story of the, um, British uh, imperial rule in Sudan, um, sort of doing that whole sort of sweep from 1898 to 1956 um, from a woman's perspective, um, but a perspective that was very much about empire being an embodied experience.
0: So to take a step back, Sudan is really difficult to place geographically and culturally. I'm actually really surprised that you wrote a paper on Sudan in a North African studies or history seminar because I remember when I took a North African history seminar in grad school um, last year we didn't touch Sudan. I think the closest we got to Sudan is when we talked about the trans mm-hmm. book trade. So it's, it's very interesting because Sudan is at the same time, um, someone once described it to me, um, Arabic in the context of Sudan as both a colonized language and the language of the colonizer. And, you know, is it part of the Middle East? Is it part of Africa? So how do you specifically orient Sudan? Um, is it Arab? Is it, is it Arabophone? Is it Middle Eastern? Is it intersectional? Like what, what sort of identity do you think gives... Sudan and the people who identify with Sudan agency.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a great um, question and a complex question. And we should um, perhaps clarify that though we are using the word Sudan, and um, when we talk about it in the past, Sudan is one large country, um, it now exists as two countries, right? Um, Sudan, the Republic of Sudan, which is the northern portion and then the Republic of South Sudan, which became independent in 2011. Um, But but right, historically, um, Sudan is this sort of complicated uh, territory that doesn't really fit neatly into um, uh, academic categories, geographic categories, Um, so that the portion that the book focuses on and that I study is the um, central region and the northern region, and which was the most dominant of, of the two. And they certainly have um, an, an Arab identity, right? Um, Arabic is their lingua franca. Um, and uh, so so for, for those, right? So for people in Northern Sudan, they probably um, don't um, have a relationship with the Arabic language as sort of a colonizer language, which I think is, is a great description, right? of um, the sort of the larger internal politics of Sudan. But I I really, what draws me to it is is this sort of marginal borderland quality, right? That it is um, at the intersection of all these different trade routes, right? So the ones that you've mentioned, there's a cloth trade. Um, If we look East, um, you know, there are uh, trades with the the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean. Um, And so what I... What, what drew me to Sudan is that it is this sort of uncomfortable space um, that uh, has, that its people has sort of had to work to sort of I- stake a claim and identity, right? And because it's on those margins, um, there seemed to be a flexibility for some of these people to say, uh, we are Muslim, we speak Arabic, we are part of this Arabophone world, we are Middle Eastern, um, or, you know, Looking at Southern Sudan, no, we are we are something different. We have a, a different heritage, um, and so I like the the messy quality to it. Um, and certainly, when I describe myself as someone who studies the Middle East, and then they say, "Oh, what do you work on?" and I say Sudan, um, you know, the, you can sort of see people cataloging and scanning through their their mental maps to figure out how Sudan, um, you know, sort of fits or doesn't fit into what I say that I do. Um, and I think that just opens up uh, a lot of possibilities for historical inquiry, right? To to look at these margins, to look at the places that um, don't fit perfectly into into the categories that we, we've organized our lives around.
0: No, I definitely think they challenge our assumptions. And I think a lot of what this book did for me was, I mean, a lot of what I work on um, is Arabic language material. And I always like using that term because – intellectual material because I feel like it's more inclusive. Mm -hmm. And I feel that this book really hopefully will challenge that sense because I often hear Sudan referred to as East African. I hear it referred to as North African. But then it just – it complicates it. And I think, again, I think your book really forces us to take the agency of the individuals involved Um, seriously and I think that whether I mean you're not necessarily dealing with this the the oblique issue of Sudanese identity but I think sort of implicitly you're asking us to take these people seriously as as actors Um, so sort of tangentially related to the question of agency one thing that's really interesting about Sudan is the colonial relationship um, because there's a description at some point in the book of um, Sudan is sort of where they sent athletic (laughs) the the British sent athletic wrestlers also it's co-administrative, you have the role of the right. nations. Um So, so is, is that sort of an accurate assumption, that sort of colonialism in Sudan is just very unique? Um, and also I was, I was wondering about the question of race, because that's something else that sort of muddles our idea of what fits into the Middle East.
1: Yeah, so um, Sudan does um, have a strange um, colonial... Uh, right... Uh, uh, a strange sort of colonial sort of setup. So first of all, um, it is never uh, it was never officially declared a colony. And so it's ruled out of the foreign office as opposed to the colonial office. Um, and that may make no difference for anyone other than a historian. But, uh, but that means that it was sort of subject to different ideas um, and um, different understandings about what people were doing there. Um, and you're absolutely right that um, it is jointly colonized by both um, Great Britain and Egypt, who um, in Egypt itself was colonized by England for much of this. So there's um, there's sort of a weird overlap and, and, and circular relationship going on. Um, what what ends up happening as, um, is is that neither the Egyptians nor the British are very comfortable with this relationship, and so um, they're always trying to sort of downplay the other's influence. Um, so that by the ni- 1920s, um, you've sort of Great Britain and British civil administrators have reasserted their dominance. Um, and Egypt is really just paying for the upkeep of this colony, but they've lost a lot of on-the-ground um, influence. And then as and then, as you point out, the, the British administrators who come out are um, not like um, others that belong to colonial civil service. So the, the line that was tossed around um, was that Sudan was a land of blacks ruled by blues, um, and blue is a reference to a sporting certificate that you get at Oxford or Cambridge when you um, win in particularly great matches um, and and the Sudan the the exam for um, the Sudan political service was notably easier than the one for India um, and so uh, again thinking about sort of margins and borderlands right that Sudan becomes um, this spot in which you um, you know, not the best and the brightest go-to, right? But the ones that have a sense of athleticism, that are looking for adventure, um, that, you know, don't want to have to sort of try too hard intellectually, um, they end up in this, um, you know, sort of curious place called Sudan. Um, And and so the the race question, I want to make sure that I understand it. Do you mean race between perceived racial differences between Sudanese and Egyptians or Southern Sudanese and... Um, Oh, um,
0: I suppose just the relationship between colonizers or, or hierarchies and black bodies specifically. Um, Mm
1: -hmm. yeah. And I, I, you know, and frankly, I saw a lot less of that, um, in Sudan. So, um, you know, the British are fantastic in, in creating racial and ethnic categories. Um, and, um, you know, so that we see, and and we see the ways in which they come up with these really sort of descriptive understandings for um, ethnic attributes um, in places with a lot of sort of ethnic diversity. Um, You know, I'm I'm thinking of India, for example. Um, But in Sudan, there, um, there's less of a, um, they draw sort of just two really distinct categories. There are those in the North who are Arab and Muslim, um and then there are those in the South who are African um and animist and potentially Christian. Um and so they certainly do treat um uh Southern Sudanese uh slightly differently. They they have they hold up the sort of nostalgia of a return to a tribe, um, sort of the noble savage, where um and uh and sort of have a mythology around that and and the way that the British interact with the um, Northern Sudanese is is worried that they, it's sort of a defensive posture, right? Worried that they are going to be sort of radicalized by their um, Arab Muslim neighbors to the North. Um, And so there is a a sort of a protector quality that develops in which the British try and um, protect Southern Sudanese from the undue influence um, of the North.
0: So, to the book itself, one of the delights of reading it were the cha- was the chapter titles, which reference different thob patterns. Um, so, to give an example of one, it's, one is the post office pen, um, mm-hmm. and then the other is uh, the schoolmistress's ribs. And the thob in the Sudanese context, please correct me if I'm wrong, um, refers to the cloth that women wrapped around themselves. That's correct, yes. Yeah. Um, so to be clear, this book isn't simply about the tobe, but it's about the intersection of fashion and body in the context of women's history. It's an imperial history, it's Sudanese history. But what's what really stands out about the book is how you also read textiles as texts mm-hmm. and how the tobe sort mm-hmm. of weaves in and out of these themes. So I was wondering if you could sort of give us an introduction to the tobe and our sense of its emergence and its place in Sudanese history.
1: Yeah. Um, and so the, the, the tobe itself... Um, for your listeners, you can sort of envision, um, it's very much like, um, an Indian woman's sari. So it's, it's simply a rectangular length of fabric that women are wrapping around their bodies and then throwing sort of over their heads. Um, and it's an outer garment. It's meant for modesty to, um, shield women and girls, um, when they're out in public or in the company of, of unrelated men. Um, and the tobe itself, um, it means bolts of cloth. So in some ways it gets sort of particularly difficult to track when you're thinking about um, imports, exports, and that kinds of thing. Um, but it's we can trace its um, history back to um, late 18th, early 19th century. And it begins as a garment um, for elite uh, elite women, wives of merchants who are involved in these um Regional sort of expansive trades, and it's um, it, it's it's a <clears throat> excuse me, it's a um, a piece of presentation right and display to wear these sorts of fine cloths um, around you, which which hint at um, sort of the distances that these um, materials have had to travel. Um, over the course of the nineteenth century, there is a um, religious proto-nationalist movement that sweeps through much of northern Sudan. Um, and accompanied with that are much more conservative, strict um, interpretations of Islam and sex segregation. Um, and so more and more women begin um, adopting the tope or are compelled to adopt modest clothing like the tobe. Um, and so the story really, st- with the book really starts um, as the tope has become sort of a recognized garment uh, for uh, married women, and what the book then tracks is the way in which this the tobe goes from a utilitarian garment um, to something that is uh, much more fashionable, with, with, with all sorts of different changing styles and trends. Um, but then also the way that the tobe is picked up um, as a garment that schoolgirls are wearing um, on their ways to school. Right, so these are now uh, young unmarried girls who are um, picking up this particular fashion. Uh, and and using it as a means of accessing um, uh, educational opportunities, um, and then you of course have mentioned what I think is sort of the most fascinating part is that each of these taupe styles have names um, because they are um, these sort of simple rectangular lengths of fabric. Um, they are most often white. Um, in, in, in the time period that we're talking about. Um, and they will have patterns, perhaps, of polka dots or stripes, um, but these patterns are white-on-white white patterns. And so a way to distinguish a new style um, is to give it a name. And um, the names are incredibly evocative, right? So um, the schoolmistress's ribs, which celebrates a rise of girls' education, um, and it was a striped tobe, so the stripes are you know, mimicking this sort of ribbed quality. Um, and the school miss- mistress's ribs, um, actually echoes, um, an earlier tobe, of uh, um, called the doctor's ribs, which came out in 1928, uh, to celebrate, um, the, uh, first graduating class of Sudanese men from the Gordon medical college. Um, so that there is, um, uh, often these moments in which you can sort of really clearly date a tope style to an event um, or a contemporary issue that's happening. Um, and, and that's how I get to sort of reading textiles as text, right? So that um, we don't have evidence of, um, we don't have much evidence of Sudanese women talking about the importance of schooling or education. Um, but we do have um, topes, right, that reference Notions of education and that are celebrating education, um, and um, and and so I've tried to do that, um, you know, without reading too much into it. But but as you suggest, right, that this is the way that I find women's voices. This is the way that I find agency, um, in in how they are naming um, these styles of their everyday dress.
0: Well, another example that I loved was, which I mentioned was the post office pen. Yeah, um, and what I loved about it was that. I, I don't think you're overreading into anything when you say that. Well, the post office pen refers to um, the it's a dotted fa- fabric, I believe. Right? Um, there's there's dots along the fabric, and it refers to the. Um, I mean, it's sort of ubiquitous in in, in, in the United States. Sort of the uh, the the ball the, the the chain with little balls right. on it that we see at different places like a post office. So you don't take the pen away, right. you. Um, and that to me just felt. So like such a concrete example of how um, the imperial relationship was being seen, how perhaps um, different hierarchies are being seen. It was just so well done um, because it referenced something that did come with the colonial context. Um, so on that note, sort of often women in their place in society um, in the colonial context are seen as markers of civilization in, in reference to the mm-hmm. colonizer. Um so I'm curious, how did the British seek to civilize Sudan um, and how did this differ? Because we've been talking a lot about how unique Sudan was. And I'm, I'm curious whether or not the policies of the colonizer, um, particularly toward women, were affected by the, Br- the British's sense of what Sudan was.
1: Right. Um, so again, here we get to a little bit about where um, Sudan is unique in that um, uh British administrators are worried about um uh uprising and 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 sort of a nationalist movement. Um, the reason they come into Sudan in the first place is to put down this nationalist rebellion. Um and so they make sort of a gentleman's agreement with um uh, Orthodox religious leaders in Sudan, um, saying that they that the British are not going to challenge. Um, personal status codes right or Sudanese culture so they're not going to sort of directly challenge things like um marriage uh, child custody divorce um uh, th- things having to sort of do with the family and and by extension right they're not going to um they're also not going to sort of evangelize um in the north and and a lot of that right gets sort of wrapped up with um domestic life and thus sort of women's um, women's sphere, sort of women's culture, right? So that in some ways the British are very much uh hands-off. Um but um you're they are these you know imperialists are absolutely operating in um, a moment in which the strength and civility of a nation is absolutely judged by the status of its women. Um and so the uh, the British intervene in two ways. Um, one which we've already sort of hinted at is um, education, right? And so they um, set up formal education for girls um, along sort of Western lines, um, and it's it's not huge or expansive. I mean, it certainly could have been larger, um, and but but they do do that. And this is something that um, the Sudanese population as a whole is sort of very interested in educating their girls. Um, we have incidents of. Um, so the ways that you got in, there were a number of different ways to get into these schools, um, but one of which was just sort of clearly age, right? If you were the right age, um, and there was an, an, you know, an opening in the fourth form or the third form, um, your daughter could perhaps go in. Um, but because girls don't have um, birth certificates, or many of them didn't, um, age was sort of judged on, you know, how many sort of adult teeth or baby teeth a girl had in her mouth at any one time. Um, you know, and parents were known to lie about, um, or sort of be deceptive in the age of their daughters because they, they just wanted them in school. Um, and so this was a program that many Sunnis were very much, um, in favor of. Um, but the other way, the other sort of major thrust of, um, sort of the British civilizing mission was in the arena of female genital cutting. Um, so in Sudan, Uh, They practice one of the most uh, extreme forms of female genital cutting known as infibulation, um, in which the labia major and minor um, and uh, the clitoris is removed. Um, The remaining flesh is is stitched closed, leaving only a small hole for urine and menses to pass through. Um, And when the British learned about this, they were sort of absolutely horrified and thought that this was Um, you know, sort of an incredible degradation of um, women. And they set out, um, they established a midwifery program uh, to uh, train uh, midwives in Western biomedicine, but also to establish sort of new standards of what reproductive health looks like um, and that a reproductive body would not be a circumcised body. Um, They largely fail in... um, in, in this attempt, um, but but these are sort of the, the sort of the two threads of um, you know sort of shaping minds through education, but then also a very sort of concentrated attempt in changing what um, a woman's body looked like, right, and and in the most intimate way, um, you know, specifically what um, genitalia of a civilized woman um, would look like.
0: One thing I think that's interesting about the relationships between the colonized and the colonizer is that oftentimes the colonizer might not understand different forms of political expression, um, and one form I think of constantly is, is clothing. So I'm I grew up in the West Bank. I'm Palestinian, and uh, during the mm-hmm. 1930s, during the Great Arab Revolt in 1936, we we re framed a lot of our clothing and our music in order to sort of code political messages into them as forms of resistance. Um, and that's an example from the Palestinian context. But I was wondering, does this manifest in the Sudanese context?
1: So, so certainly uh, clothing is political in the ways that it talks back and, and references particular moments. So some other examples of toad names, as the 1950s um, progresses and the nationalist movement takes off, there are names such as freedom, independence, the republic, um, the diplomatic core, right? Which, which anticipates the arrival of foreign embassies. Um, But, but this resistive quality or this anti-imperialist quality, um, I think is less apparent than um, something that I, I I really thought about in terms of um, the Taube as functioning as a way of um, establishing a sense of place in, um, a wider world and, and a marking out, um, a territory of, um, belonging. Um, and so what, what I see is, is not so much, um, the sort of direct activist sort of pushback against imperialism, but clothing as a way of, um, and the tobe specifically as a way of claiming a spot, um, in this, uh, World that is changing, right? Um, as, as empire sort of begins to wane. And this gets back um, in some ways to what you were thinking about with with the post office pen, right? as um, and an excitement or an interest in um, imperial infrastructures, right? like a postal system, um, the education that's required to sort of send a letter to someone, and then also the um, the the sort of imaginative longing of that there was someone, um, to receive a letter and perhaps write back. Um, and, and I found that this, um, then results in a more complicated story, right? It's not just, oh, um, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, sort of Gandhi's homespun cloth movement, right? of where we're we're wearing this particular type of clothing as a, a protest of imperial power. Um, Egypt has something very similar in which you have to, um, with, with nylon stockings, and you, you know, you're supposed to wear nylon stockings that have um, been produced within Egypt. Um, and I think what Sudanese women do is, is more complex, right? In that it's, um, it's not so much sort of nationalist um, as imaginative. Um, and I think that has sort of really strong political implications as well.
0: No, I think that definitely, I mean, I mentioned earlier that I think the book gives a lot of agency to its actors. And I think that's another way in which sort of you muddling this, these senses of what resistance is or what political conversation is or engagement mm-hmm. with the colonizer. I think you've really given a lot of agency to these characters to so sort of to bring it back to a more micro level. Um, the body and fashion... Are separate in sort of the title of the book, fashion and body politics in Imperial Sudan, but they're b- very inextricably linked. Um, so, what is the relationship of clothing to the body, both in the abstract but also in the Sudanese imperial ca- uh, case?
1: Yeah, um, that's great, and um, and you picked up on something that I didn't even think about, right? And that my title um, treats them as separate things. Um, I think I just liked the cadence of, of two things. Uh, well, and also I had I had a different word in there, and the publisher didn't like it, so we had to anyway. Uh, but, um, so in some sense, right, That the clothing is, um, an extension of the body, right. And, um, in the ways that our, um, skin expresses certain things, right. The clothing as a sort of our, our outer, outer layer, um, so express expresses again, sort of notions of place, belonging, what community do I belong to? What class do I belong to? What gender do I belong to? Um, and, and so in that sense, they um, are, are sort of linked and perhaps treated as one unit. What's different though, um, and this is perhaps a very obvious point, is that fashion is so much more malleable than, um, than the flesh, right? Than the body itself, Um, so one of the things, um, the Sudanese women, um, historically had sort of marked their bodies in particular ways. There had been, um, uh, tattooed lips and these were, um, uh, done to sort of enhance beauty on the eve of a woman's wedding. Uh, cheek scars were also carved into the, um, scars were carved into the cheeks of actually both, um, Boys and girls, and these were to indicate tribal affiliations, um, but also, again, um, as as marks of sort of beauty and, and something appealing. Um, and as um, as the twentieth century progresses, as um, urban life becomes sort of more pronounced and urban culture becomes the dominant culture. Um, Uh, these kinds of body marks fall away. However, um, you know, if if your body has already been tattooed or scarred in a particular way, um, you can't get rid of those marks. Um, But what you can do, right, is um, change the kind of clothing that you're wearing um, or change the meanings that are given to the clothing that you're wearing. Um, And in some senses over the 20th century, women's use of the tobe is constant um, and is expanded, as I mentioned, out into um, young girls. But there's not, um, you know, there's not a debate on, oh, should we be wearing different types of clothing. Um, in contrast, um, Sudanese men uh, um, a split in, in many ways sort of along class lines and education lines between whether Um, They take up sort of the the Western suits um, that mimic British civil servants or whether they retain um, the the sort of the Galabea like robes um, that are more um, traditional. And so um, fashion allows for sort of a a choice in political expression and social expression um, that the body sometimes is not right. There's a there's a stubbornness to flesh. There's a permanency um, to our flesh that we can't always, um, change. Um, one other thing that, um, is sort of raised in the book and I haven't fully, um, pieced out or or pulled out, um, because I, at at that time, I, I just didn't have sort of the words for it and I'm still working on finding them. Um, there's also just, um, a a, a sensual quality um, to the act of of putting on clothes, right? And to put on um, a fine imported fabric as opposed to something um, rough spun or um, lower class. Um, And and, and so I think that there's also a a sensory aspect to um, draping your body in something called um, so there's a sensory aspect to a just draping your body in in a fabric, um, but then to connect that fabric with a name like the schoolmistress's ribs or Independence, um, uh, there's there's um, I haven't quite figured out the the, the sort of the, the affective connection um, between these these names of political expression, political conversation, and and the feeling of draping one's body. Um, in that garment. So that's something that I'm still trying to piece together and, and find out how to talk about sort of cogently.
0: Well, that's actually part of my next question, which is, um, I mean, you talk about sort of how the body feels against fabric and how that, uh, but also there's this issue of motion because there's um, how you wrap something mm-hmm. around your body, but then also how you carry yourself when you're draped in this, yes. in this fabric, when you're wearing a certain aspect of clothing. Um, so, Tied into that, so motion is very much part of this book. Is um, As you mentioned, the tob is, a, is, is is outerwear. It's something that allows women to move comfortably mm-hmm. within their settings. And we spend a lot of time in two particular settings, so Khartoum and Omdurman, which are um, two urban settings, two cities in northern Sudan, northern imperial Sudan. Um, and I was curious, sort of how did you see motion and urban settings and female bodies sort of all linked together. How do they impact one another?
1: Right, um, and 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 so you're absolutely right that the that the tobe is uh, allows for mobility in um, ways that sort of hadn't been permitted before because it takes the enclosure and protection of the harem um, and 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 makes it sort of mobile. Um, but but this also means, um, and here we get back to sort of education is. Um, that the imperial period brings new opportunities for movement. So um, those are girls going to school, uh, midwives uh, attending um, cases farther and farther afield, um, nurses, teachers, um, we eventually have activists. um, And and so that that women are just um, not only moving their bodies in different ways, but moving into new spaces. Um, and there's there's sort of a dangerous quality to this. So the book touches on a you know a number of instances in which um, women are yelled at or sort of actually beaten because they are out in public in um, ways that that men believe they shouldn't be. Um, and 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 another thing, uh, a lot of this came to me as as I tried to sort of move my own body um, through. Sudan in the 21st century, right? And um the ways in which uh I tried to sort of navigate streets, navigate the heat, um navigate modesty, right, and things that were sort of expected of a woman of my class. Um and so that really sort of brought home to me, right, that the the act of going to school or um The act of um, participating in um, uh, a protest march or attending a public meeting um, was was really a form of of labor. Right. Um, And there's there's dirt and there's dust and there's heat and there's sort of jostling Um, and, and that all of that would have been um, sort of really significant experiences for women whose lives had largely been um, circumscribed by um, the home at that point. Um, and then I should also um, just sort of say, so the tobe, uh, because it is a wrapped garment, um, there's no fastenings, there's no ties or snaps. <laughs> and so to do this walk... Um, you have to hold, hold your, your elbows and your shoulders and your hips in a really sort of particular way. Um, so that the tobe doesn't fall off. Right. Um, you know, I was, uh, at a meeting in which, um, a woman wearing a tobe was attempting to serve tea. Um, and you know, it was a public, public ish space, semi-public space. Um, and, and the, sort of the choreography or orchestrations of her body to keep herself modest and also, um, you know, pour out tea and serve it. Um, you know, there was an incredible sort of body knowledge that had to happen. Um, and in, in, you know, sort of in, in order to keep her sort of wrapped and clothed in an appropriate way. So that's, you know, that's an incredibly tiny example. Um, but then when you expand that out, um, you, you see how this would have been sort of, um, that that women sort of across Sudan would have been experiencing this. Um, And in fact, there are um, observations from um, a number of uh, British civil servants who are involved in girls' education who note that, um, you know, it was sort of painful but also rather sort of funny to watch these young girls um, wrapped in these large tobes sort of attempting to make their way to school, right, that they would sort of trip and fall and would drag along the ground. um, Because to make these movements required um, training your body and holding your body in new ways.
0: I really like that point, because I think it really draws our attention to it's very, it's a universal ish point, you can sort of apply that to our modern day and age and think about fashion, style. um, And and as you mentioned, class, um, and identity, and sort of use our own bodies as case studies or the bodies of our friends and and and, and use that to create empathy. So I think that's a really powerful point. Um, even though I, I, I think the British colonial officers had an interesting perspective on it, to say the least. <laughs> Another great example from the book of sort of how, how um, the Thob could be constricted, con- not constricting, how women had to um, adopt a certain, Way of being within the thob is um, a political activist you mentioned. I b- believe it's Nafisa Ahmed al-Amin. Um, she removes she's at a political she's at a political meeting, I think, um, and she realizes no one can hear her, and she removes part of her thob from, from where it's covering part of her mouth, from where it's um, um, obstructing her speech. And then she makes her point, she's heard, and then she just you know very calmly puts it back. Um, sort of rewraps herself properly. And I, I really enjoyed that because I think that that, again, gave agency to her as an individual um, and doesn't necessarily see the tobe as constricting, but rather as something that we learn to wear as with all of our clothing, that we learn to wear our clothing. Um,
1: yeah, and so can I ask- just... Oh, yeah. I just want to sort of interject in that moment. Um, uh, so Nafisa Ahmed al is sort of a lovely, lively woman. And when she told me that story... Um, she actually acted it out, and I thought that was so powerful, right? um that um so in uh, sort of current Sudan, the tobe is not worn to cover the mouth, but um so in our normal conversations, the tobe was not covering her mouth, but then um to act out the sort of historical moment at a time in which the tobe um, did cover the mouth, right? so she to, to sort of act this out. So she first rearranges her tobe so that her mouth is covered. And then she shows me how she removed it and then puts it back on. And when she finished telling the story, she just laughed and laughed and laughed. And it was so um, powerful um, to see that, that moment of, um, you know, sort of, as you say, sort of learning our bodies and learning our clothing. Um, and I think, you know, she's also laughing at that. I think sort of the, the ridiculousness <laughs> of it all, perhaps, um, with hindsight. Um but also, you know, the fact that she thought it was really important to show me how that worked, right? That sort of literal veiling and unveiling and then veiling back again um, was such a sort of a wonderful moment um, that, again, clued me in to the ways in which um, what I was trying to tell was a story about bodies moving in new ways.
0: It's funny because I think that that um, those things – I, I want to get into the, the question of sources mm-hmm. in a moment um, – it's really those things that stick with you. Sometimes yeah. you forget meetings you have, sometimes you forget, you know, uh, I don't know, a book you read, but you, you do kind of remember what it was like to wear these little mundane mm-hmm. or everyday things, like what it was like to wear something and how it feels against you. And I think that's really powerful that that stuck out in her memory. It seems like that's what stuck out in her memory, pro- perhaps more than what she said. But I, I also think that was not the point of the interview right, right. with her. Um, But, um, yeah, I wanted to ask the question of sources because I think one thing you illustrate, which is almost a universal fact is it's very difficult to get women's voices before a certain period. Mm -hmm. Um, and you do this so well and you go into people's homes. Like there, 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 there's this whole section of the book where you describe, um, what happens when people do their hair and the different types of brains, Mm um, and then I think another thing you're very oblique about, um, and rightfully so, is that there are disciplinary prejudices that we're used to reading certain sources in certain ways. And you actually quote, again, Nafisa, um, the activist, the Sunni mm-hmm. activist, Nafisa Ahmed Al-Amin, in reference her knowledge that, that women were politically aware and that there are different types of political expression and that there are different ways of engaging with one's society and one's politics. Um, so I guess it's, it's a bit of a twofold question I'm trying to ask you, which is, um how do you determine whether certain sources exist and how do you repurpose existing sources? Sort of what's the creative mindset that you bring to it?
1: Yeah. So, um, I wish I'd had the luxury of (laughs) determining and choosing sources. Um, I felt like I was just sort of grabbing anything I could possibly get. Um, and that might be a larger story about the, the archives and things like that. But, um, I, I, um, so the, the, the sources that I used are, um, broad and, and not necessarily, um, um, you know, particularly imaginative, right? So, um, official and personal papers of British civil servants, women's journals, interviews, photographs, um, memories, uh, anthropological accounts, um, you know, and I, and I think these are all at, at this point sort of par for the course. Um, and I guess what I had to sort of get comfortable with was, um, you know, we, we exist in the world of sort of reading against the grain and, um, you know, taking, recognizing sort of implicit bias and things like that in sources. Um, and I had to get um, comfortable with what I didn't know. And also, um, and uh, and Stoller, uh, you know, sort of uses the term of sort of reading with the grain, right? And and, and perhaps sort of also um, uh, d- trusting that that many of my authors were sort of being as honest as possible about sort of their own experiences, right? Um, and um, what what I ended up doing though was was reading for bodies. And I think that this is my sort of larger methodological or disciplinary call, um, which is, um, to recognize moments of movement, um, in our sources to recognize, um, uh, periods of action or, or the, the, um, the actual physicalness of the the characters and the the agents that we're talking about um, and so I think that's um that's what I believe I've done differently and and that's sort of my larger call is that we can um, use um, the very limited sources that we have and sort of approach them in a new way um and um, and 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 figure out that 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 um sort of the the underlying, I guess, sort of tangible quality of the experience that they're trying to describe. So, for example, um, one source I used was um, a British civil servant um, complaining that her midwives should be afforded a better class, uh, a better sort of travel class pass than they had been given. So, Sudanese midwives were traveling in third class on trains and such, and she wanted them to travel second class. So this is, um, you know, sort of a bureaucratic moment. Um, but what she lays out is, um, the difficulties of traveling in third class that it's cold, it's cramped. Um, when you come to a station, third class passengers have to exit the car, whereas second class passengers um, can stay in the car. Um, and and so this so this is you know bureaucratic sort of minutia that nobody would really care about, except what but what I was interested in then was the experience of the bodies, right? The women's bodies in these cramped um, cars, traveling at night, having to exit and then re-enter, um, and so that's that's what I looked for in terms of mining, right? Sort of taking um, moments and looking for the the body, the action, the movement underneath.
0: So to close the interview, I'm really curious, what are you working on right now? Um, What other sorts of projects are you
1: pursuing? Yeah, um, so I um, am uh, working on a new project um, that that remains sort of focused on um, bodies and the intimacy of imperial experience. Um, But I'm shifting my focus to um, British women and civil servants in Sudan in the first half of the 20th century Um, And I'm looking at their um, romantic and sexual adventures. Um, And so I'm um, approaching Sudan as this, again, this uh, really important um, liminal or marginal space in which uh, British female imperialists in their public lives are um, teachers or nurses. um, But in their private lives, they're really taking advantage of this um, marginal um, social positioning of Sudan um, to pursue, um, you know, flirtations and moments of play um, and, and to sort of act out um, romantic and sexual desires that don't conform to Victorian notions of civility. Um, and so I sort of early days yet, but I have a number of sort of enticing leads and enticing characters um, and the, the goal is sort of to reconstruct, um, the imperial landscape in Sudan and to recast female imperialists, um, as, 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 as unpredictable actors, right. Um, who straddle being, um, both public models of civiliz- civility, um, but also, um, desirous subjects, right. And desiring subjects, um, who are asserting an authority, um, over their bodies
0: that sounds sounds like such a multi-fold project i don't want to call it a productive project because <laughs> that makes that's a bit of a dirty word sometimes but it's such yeah. a layered project that's going to perhaps be another great exercise in storytelling i mentioned to you before the interview that this book Khartoum at night is particularly great because it just reads like a story and it makes all these great methodological points but in such wonderful prose um, oh thank you so I'm, I'm I'm sure that's going to be another case because you seem to really have a knack for picking out characters and and these little nuggets for readers to latch onto and attach concepts to. So congratulations with the book; it's really a great achievement.
1: Oh well, thank you so much, and I appreciated all of your comments and questions. Oh, and thank you so much for doing the
0: interview with me.